This is Richard Thomas, the author of Transubstantiate, and you're listening to Book Podcast. Welcome to Book, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. This episode, we'll be talking about the May-December publications anthology Midnight Movie Creature Feature, which includes the Craig Walwork story we recently reviewed called Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters. The anthology is edited by T.W. Brown, and I'm going to go ahead and read the uh, synopsis from the book. Please step inside the May-December multiplex. Check out any of our 17 screens for tales that will titillate, tease, and terrify. Lesbian zombies? We got them, along with vampires, werewolves, swamp creatures, and a host of other nasty beasties. Inside, you will find the first B-movie horror story written for geology junkies. Yes. Come in and enjoy the show, and the best part is your ticket is good for every screen. No need to sneak from one theater to the next. It is all included in the price of admission. Hurry and find your seat. The show will start as soon as you are ready. And that's why I don't do voiceover work. I knew I knew Livius was going to be reading it this uh, this time around, so I chose a specifically very long passage for him to have to read. <laughs> I'm actually going to read a complete story. It's <laughs> my quotes later. So I've gotten into performance yeah. reading. We yeah, we created a monster a little while back. I don't know. I think it was uh, Machine Man when you and I read that thing in tandem. Ever since yes. that, man, you, we just can't shut you up. That's correct. So we're back to anthologies. Um, <laughs> yeah, <a> little, <laughs> like six days off. It's a little bit back to an anthology situation. So uh, I think we're going to do a similar format as what we did with uh, the DB Cox and Chris Deal books, where we just. Uh, each of us will talk about a few of the stories that we like the most, and then we'll talk about some more stuff kind of in general. Hey, before we jump into uh, the actual stories, let's uh, let's do a little prefacing on what the structure of this book is. You want to go ahead and kind of talk about that a little bit? Cool, yeah. Um, one of the things to take note of, if you look at the cover art, it looks kind of horror-ish, and uh, Livius was very quick to point out because he actually got a, a start on reading this a little bit before I did, that not all the stories are necessarily horror, and it's it's easy to trick yourself into just be expecting just hardcore horror stories, when in reality it's kind of much more a lot of truth in advertising. It's a lot of what it says it is. Um, creature feature, there's um, you know 17 stories that could fall really easily into like a campy B-monster movie kind of feel. So... Um, not to say some aren't scary, it's just that if you go into reading this expecting to just be scared page after page, it's not really what's going to happen. Right. A lot of them are, are written in a very tongue-in-cheek manner, which works, in my opinion, very well for some of the stories, as you're going to hear about as we uh, start to get into them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's just an important thing to maximize your enjoyment of the book is to not go in there with, like, you know unreasonable expectations it does have a very b-movie kind of feel some are scary some are just kind of jokey or funny or yeah a little bit in between 
Cool. You want to kick it off with the uh, first story? Yeah. All right. The first story that I want to talk about is a story called The Lure, and it's written by Chantal Boudreau. The story basically is about a guy who loses his son when they're out fishing together, and uh, he kind of becomes obsessed with the monster that took that took him away. And uh, I don't know. It's an interesting kind of unique premise. I thought the, the story in general was really well executed and had a really solid kind of wrap up to the idea of losing yourself in an obsession kind of thing. So overall, I thought it was a pretty tight story with a, a unique approach. It was pretty good. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a little less, you know, and I'm going to use this word and hopefully not offend anybody, but campy, you know, is, is really how some of these stories come off in, in a good way. But it was one of the less campy stories, I think, too. It was uh, a little more serious, even though the premise of, a you know, the giant man-eating fish is, uh, is a little, you know, I don't know, a little on the silly side. The story itself was very serious about loss and, you know, what you're willing to, to do to... To get to revenge avenge. or to get them yeah, back. Yeah, to avenge okay. a loved one. So I really enjoyed that story too. Yeah, and you know what I was thinking of, and I, I didn't make a note of this, but um, <laughs> people that haven't read that might not uh, understand the the meaning behind what I'm saying it is, but it almost had a very minor, minor tinge of like a crimes in southern Indiana feel. Like, you know, a, a father and son going down to the fishing hole it just seemed like it was, you know what I'm saying? If you take away the monster. Yes, Kind of a feel yes, like and that. I agree with you. Yeah. It did have that kind of, yeah. kind so, of family vengeance thing going on. Yeah. All right, the first story I'm going to talk about, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and say this now. Because almost all the names of the authors are going to be pronounced poorly today, Rob and I have decided that these must all be aliases. So I'm going <laughs> to say that now before I go on butchering names. Um, Joseph A. Pelega um, and Hayride. Uh, it's a great, great story. Um, about a mother who um, whose young son is, you know, it's Halloween time and he's become really terrified of monsters and she's trying to convince him that there are no such thing as uh, these creatures that, you know, he's seeing around for Halloween are not really monsters. So what she does is she takes him on a haunted hayride um, to prove to her son that these monsters aren't real. And uh, it kind of takes a really interesting turn um, from there. What I really, really liked about this story, and this fits into that uh, movie creature feature kind of thing that we were talking about earlier, is that this so easily could have been a Twilight Zone episode or even more so like a Tales from the Dark Side episode, if anybody's uh, old enough to remember that show when it was on TV. Just fantastic. Uh, my only issue with the story, and this didn't take away from me picking it out as one of my top three, was that there was a breaking point kind of two-thirds of the way into the story that I would have liked to have seen as a really, really clean cut, um, but still excellent overall. I agree with everything you said, pretty much. It does have that Twilight Zone feel of just turning your perspective on something completely around on itself. But yeah, like you said, the moment that that, that perspective shift happens would have been a far better ending than, than the actual ending that was in there. Yeah. Still really liked it. Do you remember Tales from the Dark Side? Did you ever watch that? I didn't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Tales from the Dark Side. This had to have been late 80s, maybe? Mid to late 80s? It, it was very Twilight Zone, but it was always like monster-focused, more monster-focused than the Twilight Zone was. Um, there was actually, now that I say that, there was another show that came on around that time that I think was actually called Monsters. But anyway, yeah, it was, uh, you know, half-hour episodes with these little stories, and they all focused around monsters, and that's the one out of all the ones I read in here that that really struck me as a Tales from the Dark Side. 
All right, the next one I'm going to talk about is called North by M.J. Wesolowski. Again, obviously a made-up name. Uh, the story essentially... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, all the Wesolowskis out there, you're all fake people. <laughs> the idea of the story is uh, the, there's a paranormal kind of reality show that um, gets a little bit more than it expects when it uh, travels to Siberia for an episode. I, I believe the story is pretty well staged. It feels pretty real. The suspense was really good. Overall, I thought it was a good story. My only real criticism was that the ending was, it was okay, but um, it seemed like, first of all, it ended too quickly, and second of all, um, even though there was a lot of scary stuff going on, it didn't feel like there was an immediate danger. It felt a little bit like one step removed, and granted, the way that the story is set up, it stuff to explain, but like the beginning of the story kind of echoes what, what the actual ending is, so it makes sense and it's like a cohesive thought, but I just felt like the danger felt like it was a little too far away and it could have stood to be a little bit more in your face, but um, yeah, it was a cool story and uh, I liked it. thought it was pretty cool. It's actually one of the things I liked about that story was the, um, and there are a lot of stories that, that do this, not a lot in this particular anthology, but it like starts at the end and then is a look back to how someone got to the position they're in. Mm -hmm. Which I, I find when it's well done, like I thought it was in this story, I always find that kind of an entertaining. Like yeah. if you actually remember, because I mean there are novels that, that start that way and by the time you get to the end you forget mm -hmm. that the beginning point was a look back. And a short story, it's much easier to kind of keep that in mind over the course of, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 pages. Yeah, and definitely it was well executed. The story, again, really tight. I just felt like that danger needed to be a little bit closer to me in order to, to really drive home the spooky scariness of it. All right, I'm going to go totally off the, the, the reviewing portion of this and, and, and really talk, you know, kind of off topic about sort of off topic or at least a little more in depth. How cool was it? And no one else will understand this if you haven't read the story, but I really like the tank, like that there was a tank in the middle of where <laughs> they were. Like I thought that was just great. And I don't know if there's any any type of geographic you know, reality to that. But anyway, they're in like the frozen tundra of, of Siberia. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the, the vehicles that they used to get around is an old like decommissioned tank. And I don't know if that's actually what's used in Siberia. Um, but Dan, I just thought that was like really cool. It's cool. It makes sense too. And our friend J. David Osborne will appreciate this in the story. They actually reference a, a, a Russian gulag that they run into kind of in their exploration of the space that they're in so nice throwback i think the tank then i'm all over the place with my thoughts but i think the tank makes sense i mean i've never traveled any kind of frozen tundra but i'd imagine that <laughs> tank treads maybe make a little bit more sense than rubber tires says the only person i know who has been to alaska that's true i have i have twice yeah. look at that <laughs> Twice as many times as I assumed you'd been there. I climbed, <laughs> I climbed a mountain in Alaska. I've been to the top of a mountain in Alaska. Very nice. Yeah. And and in Vermont too. And in Vermont. <laughs> you know, never took you for much of a mountain climber, to be no. honest. Well, they're you know, tame mountains. Very tame <laughs> mountains. Oh, steering it back. We didn't. Track. <laughs> we didn't have to set up base camp or anything. <laughs> <laughs> We kind of parked. Uh, <laughs> That's as close to a gulag as I've ever been, you know, a, a parking lot at the, at the yeah. base of a mountain. Listen, there are still, I don't know, you know, whatever, 
14 authors hanging on by the edge of their seats to see if we're going to mention their story because everybody else is tuned out now. So let's get back into this. Sure. Go for it. <laughs> My next one and um, one of the lighter hearted stories, although still pretty horrifying, um, is called The Fish Boy and it's by Eric Dimbleby. Um, it is. I'd say Dimbleby. That's Dimbleby. what I would say. Dimbleby. Dimbleby. Yeah, he made this up, so. <laughs> Eric Dimbleby. Sorry, guys. And, you know, I always feel bad doing that because living with a name like Livius, it, it gets messed up a lot by people. And then when I can't pronounce somebody's name, I always feel terrible. But very obviously, these are all aliases. So so the fish boy is about how to really explain this <laughs> properly. It's about an amphibian. Um, who's shaped pretty much like a like a human, and he's uh, you know the, getting to be the last in a long line of this species. Uh, he's lost his family, he's lost his parents, and he looks to adopt a new human family. So, <laughs> I started reading this story, and I'll be really honest. I'm like, oh god, this is awful. There's like this fish guy. This is just <laughs> terrible. And he's like stalking this human family. And the further I read this, the more I get sucked in. And although it starts out to be, and overall is probably one of the sillier stories, um, Eric, I'm not going to try the last name again, does a very, very good job by, uh, he sets up the, the fish boy to kind of stalk slash observe this family for a little bit. I think his insights into the family unit were really good. And the thing that really won me over is that this fish boy has a like kind of fish brain, and all he knows is that he wants to adopt this family, and he has this plan on how he wants to do this. And as horrible and as nonsensical as it is, even as you're reading his plan, his justification and his um, the the kind of simple way he he views his own situation really turns out to to become a terrific story and easily one of my top three favorites in this in this anthology. Yeah, my impression of the story kind of was the same as yours. There was a very tenuous kind of premise uh, from the start, but as it takes shape, you know, uh, I what I think Eric Dimbleby did <laughs> the best was. Um, making it seem very innocent from the, the, you know, coming from the fish boy's point of view. Like he's just, he's got, he's trying to make his family whole again with these, these new parents or whatever. And, um, so it's all, it's, it's weird and it's wrong, but it feels very innocent. And then there's this like moment of like a revealing moment. That's just kind of like, wow, this is a pretty horrible story. <laughs> like horrible, not horribly written, but horrible. Like it's got some horror to it. So, um, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was pretty great. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed it. And, and again, you know, there, there's one of those great things, my expectations going into it, you know, first couple pages were so low, you know, I just, I thought it's got barrel through this one you know, to get to the next story. I mean, and that's honestly how I felt about it. I'm like, great, you know, fish boy, even the title, I was like, ugh. and as I read it, it became one of my favorite stories in the anthology. So nice job, Mr. Dimbleby. I'm surprised you didn't out my, my text message like you usually do when I talk about specifics from what we're reading. Only because I don't remember what you're talking about. Oh, I texted you and I said, Fishboy is awesome. And you replied, yes. I really enjoyed it. Yes. Yes, you so, did. There's, if anybody wants a, a four-word review of the Fishboy, it's Fishboy is awesome. All right. What do you got next? Whose name are you going to butcher next? 
Let's go right to Kelly Combrink, who wrote the story Visitor. And I'm not going to do a great job of explaining it because it's a little bit of a weird story. But um, the story starts out with uh, like a newspaper clipping kind of thing about uh, talking about a local legend of a Sasquatch or something, which you kind of gloss right over. And then it kicks into this couple that's visiting family for Thanksgiving while they're talking over dinner. They're talking about this local legend about... Uh, some ghostly person who was buried near their family's house and, and all this stuff. So they're setting it sets the scene for something creepy is going to happen at some point in the story. And then as the story goes, they leave and they're going to someone else's house and, you know, they run across this monster and it, it, chaos ensues. The thing I really liked about the story was that it was really it packed in the suspense very well. The monster in the story ended up being really cool and, and pretty creepy. And they ended the story again with a newspaper clipping. So it was kind of a cheesy but nice way of bookending the action with um, just some quick exposition in a way that makes sense. So overall, I thought it was a, a really tight story that I enjoyed. That was one of the stories for me that I think um, most related to a horror story. It's the couple driving at night in the mm -hmm. snow kind of. And, you know, we've all seen that movie. You know what that so I think that one probably affected me the most in like a very visual familiar way of all the stories um, and not to say that it wasn't like original in its scope and stuff. I think that uh, I think that he did some really great things there. Um, but yeah, that one was probably the most visual for me, the one I could most relate to as far as other things I've seen. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it seemed like it could easily be like a God, like an X-Files episode or, you know, some one of those kind of like episodic tv shows like mm -hmm. science fiction-y tv shows very easily you know yeah it was cool like livia said it was kind of one of the more horror heavy stories in the book and overall uh thinking about all of them it's probably the one that i liked the most out of everything i read um and we we <laughs> we talked about revenge of the zombie plus eaters before i, I that's in an entire it's in its own category so <laughs> i'm not dissing craig Wallwork when i say that the visitor was one of the, probably my favorite in the book and, and yeah and let, let's just go ahead and cut that in now because i know we're not going to spend a lot of time we did a two-hour episode <laughs> built around <laughs> that story so that one and in its in its very own way i mean stood out god i say, i don't want to say this to make summer but it stood out like a sore thumb like which one of these stories does not fit with the rest of them Although for its its campiness and B movie stuff, but that <laughs> Prevention of the Zombie Pussy Eaters was really very very different in its scope, just in the way that Waller Tree, which I absolutely loved the story, and and yeah, it's it's neck and neck for my favorite story, along with the next one I'm going to talk about, but um, and Wallwork went to extremes on that one, and the rest <laughs> of the authors, I, I don't know if they held back or if Wallwork's just in a whole different category all on his own there. Can I um can we bust in with some breaking news? Yes. Check your Facebook. Okay, checking Facebook right now. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think I know what you're talking about. Uh no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Your post-it note. There's right. been some <laughs> there's updates. <laughs> there's been a development. All right, we're going <laughs> we're going to throw this in there and uh here's what happens. So I'm setting up I'm setting up <laughs> I'm setting up shop to do the episode and 
I, I have this this uh, whatever breakfast tray I set every my microphone on, and and it just accumulates stuff over the course of weeks. And I usually just throw off whatever it is. And today I noticed as I pick up my laptop, <clears throat> underneath it is a post-it note that just says in in my writing, and this is available on my Facebook page. It says domestic grotesque fiction. Which means absolutely nothing to me when I see this. I know it's in my writing, and I'm totally creeped out because I have no idea when or why I wrote this down. So I, I posted on Facebook, hoping somebody would um, figure out what it is. And apparently, now that he has said it, uh, Caleb Ross um, had, at some point made that statement to us, probably during our interview with him. And I felt the need to write it down on a post-it note. Yeah. I'm not really sure why, but uh, that explains uh, the post-it note. Now that I read that, um, actually, Gordon Highland and Caleb Ross replied on it. And Gordon, yeah, said that he describes that that's how Caleb describes his writing. Now that I read that, I remember. Remember when uh, we were talking to Caleb during Warmed and Bound sessions, and he was talking about his um, tag clouds. Yes, that is exactly it came what from it's the, from. It came from the tag clouds. So uh, <laughs> it's hilarious, though, just coming back to that, and not knowing the <laughs> the context of it. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. I had. I don't. To, I don't. I don't even remember what road we were on, let alone how to get back to it. <laughs> we were. Yeah, I know. We were talking about. We were wrapping up talking about visitor, and you need to talk about your third story. Bam! Keeping it together by DK Moke Mock. DK Mock. I'm gonna go with Mock on this one. DK Mock. I'm okay. This story closes out the book, and that's in keeping, as it seems that every time we read an anthology, I feel very strongly the need to talk about the book Ender, as I have on all four of the anthologies that we've done. I think it's four now. This one is uh, definitely the lightest-hearted story, right along with um, Craig Walwork's Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters. It's a story of a 400-year-old zombie that's literally falling apart. Um, the zombie is... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Conscious? No, not conscious. Self-aware? Yeah, self-aware, um, I guess. Sure. Not mindless? Yes. Yeah, not mindless. And not only is uh, the zombie not mindless, but it's uh, it's just really goddamn funny. So the zombie's drawn into like the very cliched kind of uh, you'll do this job for me or else threat that's uh, put against it by a, a vampire, I guess. And... Uh, you know, what what it lacks in serious story is just more than made up for with absolutely fantastic humor. Um, I laughed out loud a couple of times while I was reading this story. Um, one of my uh, one of my two quotes, I th- actually, you know, what? I think both of my quotes I have marked down for another from this story. So, uh, again, this is a uh, neck and neck. It's a tie with uh, Revenge of the Zombie Pussy Eaters for my favorite um, for both my favorite and the funniest stories in the anthology. Wow. Yeah, it was a. Uh... It was a nice way to end it off. It was, uh, you know, not too heavy, good humor to it and everything like that. I agree. Good story. Quotes? Do you want to throw your quotes in there while we're, um, while we're talking I about can, the story? I can totally do that. Cool. All right, here we go. <laughs> here's, uh, here's one of the, the funnier ones. Again, these are from, uh, from Keeping It Together. Uh, I've been trying for centuries to track down the bokor behind my condition. Although when I say trying, I guess I mean wishing. In between stumbling through odd jobs and napping more than I needed to. Success takes so much effort, and I guess I never had the guts to make it happen. But I'm running out of time. That actually reminds me of uh, <laughs> when I was jobless in like 2001, and I was emailing someone. I was talking about what was going on in my life, and I said that I was job hunting. And then I said, well, 
It's really more like I'm here, and if a job happens as I walk by, I plan to shoot it. Nice. So. Well, so much of that is so real, I think, for a lot of people. it's. Uh, I think it may be the same story where, um, where the author makes a reference to, like, I know the right thing to do, but knowing the right thing to do and then actually putting in the effort to do it are two totally different things. Yeah. And that's, yep. you know, that's so true, I think, for so many people. And, and a 400-year-old zombie throwing that out there, even better. Yeah, for sure. So um, this other one is, uh, is uh, from the same story. It was just kind of a, a really neat description. Um, in the morning, the bridge looks like a skeletal monster rising from the water, all black spines and monolithic legs crawling with angry parasites. So just a very, uh, very good visual as far as I was concerned uh, in describing a bridge. It's good stuff. Yeah, I really liked it. Should I throw out my one quote now? or Sure, why not? This, this is um, definitely a departure for me because usually I, I pile up a lot of good quotes. And the only quote that I'm going to give this time is one that um, actually had me at the verge of just tossing my Kindle across the room because I thought it was so terrible. And I hate to talk badly about stories, and I really don't think I have um, in the 49 previous episodes. Hey, this is our 50th episode, Louvius. It is. Happy 50th episode, Rob. Happy 50th. I didn't think we'd make it past... Three. 15. Yeah, three. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like to talk bad about stories, but, um, I mean, sometimes you just have a reaction, and, and this part... Uh, the story that I'm talking about, really, I, I didn't think it was a bad story at all. I thought it had, you know, a lot of good qualities to it, but there's one line that... Oh, man, it just gave me such a reaction. The story is the spine-tingling tale of the crystal golem. And uh, <laughs> without talking too much about what happens in the story, there at one point, is it a thief? Finds this um, gem, right? Am I right about that? Yes. And um, an unexpected thing happens where he sees the face of this ancient Mayan person in the gem and uh, screams out, What is this? And then the retort, what you know, the comeback from the Mayan person in this gem is, ha 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 ha! This is the curse of the crystal golem, and it's like there's about thirty, you know, periods in between curse and of the crystal golem, and it's just, ah, oh. <laughs> like I can't. It it was bad. I disliked it. And it made me dislike the story. That's all I'm going to say because, I mean, I could go off about why that's terrible and why you wouldn't want to do something like that. But I'm going to leave it as simple as possible. Um, the thing is that is probably the campiest story, in my opinion, of the anthology. And I'm going to make you that regret that. Campy chalked up to just being as campy as that story was. I mean, like the dialogue between the girlfriend and, and the... the, the what is he gemologist was very forced, you know, kind of like it would be in a B movie. So I wasn't, I, I didn't, you know, it, it wasn't one of my favorite stories, but, um, I will say, and that I thought that it was campy, a fair amount of campy throughout that it, it, I think the author did what he and he or she intended to do with that. So I see what you're saying, but I mean, at least the way that, you know, it was conjured in my mind when I was reading it was like, it's the type of storytelling or, or, you know, it's the type of dialogue that's relegated to like shitty commercials nowadays. You know, it's just something that just doesn't happen, you know, and in, 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 I, I won't go off on it, but I, it was, okay. it was a low point in my life reading that part. <laughs> wow. Um, 
get any word cops for for this, uh, this <laughs> anthology? Yes, I do actually. Um, uh, there's there's a couple stories, and actually, I'm in the in the in the process of word copying this. I actually kind of ended up word copying myself. So that's a you know, be careful what you wish for a scenario. But um, in two different stories in this in this anthology. Uh, the word disorientated was used, and anybody who's been a loyal listener, I'm sure you all have, since our second episode at least, would know that I railed against disorientated uh, when we were talking about the Mozart conspiracy. Now, I don't like to talk about stuff without having at least some sort of flimsy backup, so I went online and I was looking up disorientated and everything, and I found a couple arguments where people were saying that the disorientated version is acceptable in British English and pretty much that just pissed me off because I think disorientated sounds ridiculous and um, I'm just gonna stubbornly be a snobby American. I'm getting all of my asshole-ishness out right in the middle of the episode so that people will forget about it by the time we talk about cool stuff at the end basically. But I think people tuned out after the during the post-it talk so <laughs> I think we're safe. Okay um, so apologies to my my, my British English speaking friends who, who will disagree with me. Um, and I think that, I mean, it's obvious because Craig Walwick, uh, where is he? He lives in the yeah, UK? He's in, he's in the UK somewhere. That, you know, this anthology is pulling from multiple countries, so uh, it's quite possible that there are people from the UK who wrote this and that's sort where of disorientated uh, comes into the mix. And so it's valid. It just really pisses me off. And uh, that's my word snob for, for this week. <laughs> I've got nothing. No, I do. And I don't know. This could have been. Okay. T.W. Brown sent us uh, an early copy of this when you know we talked to him about doing um, reviewing Craig Walwork's story. So I don't know that that was a final proof that we got. So there are some things that didn't come over real well on my Kindle, and, and that's fine, and I'm, I'm used to it. It's not perfect technology. But um, <clears throat> there's a story, and now I don't remember which one it is, but uh, I do remember which one it is. It is... <laughs> Fish out of water. Now, this may also be a, a, a cultural whatever, but the uh, author used the word that they, they were cooked up, K-O-O-K-E-D, um, as opposed to cooped up, which I believe is the proper statement for that. So I get my own word cop in there That's to, take, to, to take some of the focus off of Rob's tirades. <laughs> so <laughs> just throwing that in there to deflect a little bit. Hey, Rob, you want to go ahead and start the wrap-up? Sure. So like I said before, just to kind of wrapping up what the what the book is, it's very much what it says by the title, Midnight Movie Creature Feature. It's a bunch of uh, monster-ish themed stories that go the, the whole spectrum from being horror to just being kind of funny or campy, kind of B-movie type stories. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I liked in there. Uh, there's a few that I didn't really care for, and obviously there's some moments that um, just didn't really sit well with me, but that's the risk you take when you're reading 17 stories by 17 different people. It'd probably be pretty rare if you liked everything. Um, overall, more good than bad. I thought it was uh, well put together and a unique approach to an anthology. It was a nice way to pull together, uh, trying to think of the best way to put it, you know, a bunch of different things. You know, there's not one solid theme throughout, so he he had the opportunity to just pull in stories that he saw that um, pulled off a nice midnight movie creature feature theme. Overall, I'm going to give it a three and a half stars. Okay. I'm going to 
um, going to my little bit of the wrap up, uh, I'm going to start by saying again, you know, expectations being what they are, you have to go in and expect a lot of what we said, that there's going to be some campiness and stuff. If you pick it up um, just as a horror anthology, uh, I'm afraid you'll get twisted around and, and, and disappointed. Again, that being said, I think that the idea for doing a kind of, you know, B movie horror story anthology is, is like semi genius. <laughs> um, and, and I think that all in all, um, you know, Mr. Brown totally hit the mark with what he was looking to do. And I think there is a good fair mix of, of, you know, seventies, eighties horror stories, but then there's some really funny stuff in there and there's some campy stuff and definitely some very bizarre and weird stuff. So it was a really good mix. Uh, and I, I think, like I said, he just, he totally hit the mark with what he was, what he had set out to do. Um, the title really sums it up really well. Midnight movie creature feature. Love it. Some other stories, just a couple that I wanted to mention just in passing that I like that just, we just don't want to, we don't want to talk about all 17 stories is, is what it is. But, mm -hmm. um, uh, just the two of us was a great story, uh, by Anthony Bell, and the dark growls back was very interesting. Aaron dries dead planet, uh, some space zombies in it. Um, I, I enjoyed that was by Ryan Hillis and that's just a few of them. I don't want to go through and just read the whole list, but obviously there were, um, the six that we talked about and you can't forget revenge of the zombie puss eaters. I know I'll never be able to forget that story. I don't know if that's good or bad exactly, but, um, so yeah, as with any anthology, I mean, there's some really, really great stuff there, and then there's some stuff that was that was just okay, and even the okay stuff wasn't too bad, except for maybe one. But um, yeah, all in all, all in all, I really liked it. You remember the last time I said that? We just got a bunch of messages about which one was which that. One was it? Which yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, that was. Oh, that was when Dirty Noir launched, I think. Yep. So Let the messages come. I handle them all very tactfully. Um, then I'll handle them all again. All in all, I'm going to give it four stars. I uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I will say that I had to remind myself probably about the second or third story, what the direction of this anthology was. Because I was like, yeah, you know, this is kind of campy, blah, blah, blah. And then I really you know, sat back and thought about it and thought, hey, wait a minute. This is what it's supposed to be. So he definitely, definitely hit the mark as far as I'm concerned. Four stars for me. Cool. Yeah. And um, to talking a little bit more about that, that theme, he... he there's a couple things he does, like, even when the, the stories are listed, it doesn't say by, and then the author's name, it says starring, and um, he, he refers to each story as, like, its own, you know, on its own screen and stuff like that, so did it, I like the way that he presented it. He didn't just give it a cool name and then leave it there. He actually in, incorporated that, uh, like, movie festival kind of thing feel into into the book all the way throughout. Oh, and we should mention that I didn't, we just found this out this evening, but um, the, like I said, we got an, a very early distribution copy of it on our Kindles. Um, there are apparently pictures that go with, I'm guessing, all the stories or a lot of the stories. So that would be some added value for anybody who, uh, who looks to get it now. That's right. So. Though I could totally tell what Fishboy looks like, too. <laughs> I think I know some people who look like Fishboy. Nice. Very nice. That story, I'm telling you, man, I don't think that I've ever had been that turned around on my opinion of a story in, you know, in that short of a span of time where I was just like, oh, this is just going to be brutal. And by the end, I'm like, this is really, really good stuff. I really enjoyed that story. For sure. Hey, we got some other topics to talk about. We're not leaving you here. We got a lot more to go through. 
Yes, we do. Um, oh, let's see. That first note is yours. So go ahead and uh, kick it off. Okay. The first note that I have to talk about here is that there's a new book out by Gregory Maguire in the Wicked series of books. It's the fourth book called Out of Oz. And it's actually the final book in the series. So it started out with Wicked. I'm sure most people understand what Wicked is. It was a story about Elphaba, who, um, you know, is the Wicked Witch of the West in the classic L. Frank Baum Wizard of Oz series. And then the second book was Son of a Witch, which uh, focuses, which, which <laughs> focuses on Elphaba's son. And then uh, the third book was called The Lion Among Men, which the main character in that was the Cowardly Lion. Uh, I've read through those three, and I admittedly it was a while ago, so I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's a little foggy. But it's a really interesting series. Gregory Maguire, they're a little tough to get into at first, but it's it's usually really worth it because he, he tells a great story, and this whole idea of adapting these kind of fairy tale books into more serious adult-oriented books I thought was pretty cool. And he does a good job of, of doing kind of political commentary and stuff and lacing that throughout what he's doing. The, the situations that are going on in the book reference what's going on in real life. It's pretty cool. So this fourth book, Out of Oz, um, is the final book in the series, like I said. And I don't know much about Out of Oz because this came onto my radar very recently, but it was released on uh, at the beginning of the month, I think the first. And a very basic plot summary is um, it opens with Glinda under house arrest. Burr is also running from the law, and none other than Dorothy makes another appearance. Elphaba's little granddaughter, who was born at the end of Son of a Witch, is named Rain and has come of age to use Elphaba's broomstick. Again, I really like the the weird direction that McGuire took this uh, um, Wizard of Oz story in. And like I said, it's kind of tough to get into his books at first, but really, really interesting once you take the time to, to go through them. And, and he writes a, a hell of a good book. I enjoyed these Oz books more than I ever thought I would. Um, can you say that the witch's name again? Alphaba. Okay. Now, you, you went and saw Wicked, correct? Mm -hmm. Is that an official pronunciation? Yeah. Okay. I read Wicked when it very first came out and really, really enjoyed it. Um, I echo a lot of the things you said about the book. I actually, my one, yeah, let me yeah, back on track here. Um, I, in my head, it's been Alphaba for, I don't know, 10 years since it came out. So that's an official pronunciation. And now I, I yeah. agree re-kind of configure my thought on it. Um, uh, you know, he said kind of hard to get into. I had no problem getting into Wicked. I thought that it was very dry in the middle, um, maybe the middle hundred pages or so. I had real trouble stumbling through. But other than that, absolutely loved it. I am quite the Wizard of Oz fan. I love the movie. Um, I've loved uh, some of the original books and some of the, you know, even some of the sequels that came out. So I, I do anything Wizard of Oz related always perks my interest. Um, for some reason, I just never got around to reading Son of a Witch or uh, A Lion Among Men. And uh, as I mentioned before, I'm way behind on my personal reading you know, schedule. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I don't know that I'll ever get to them. It is certainly on my long list of books to, to read to get caught up with that series. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things where um, I think I was hesitant to read Wicked at first because it had a ridiculous amount of hype. But eventually I did read it and... Um, I thought it was fantastic, and then uh, my girlfriend Shane, who doesn't read a lot, gave me *Son of a Witch* to read, and I, you know, grudgingly eventually started reading it, and I loved it. I thought it was better than *Wicked*, 
And Lion Among Men, I think, stands up to the to the series. Uh, it was pretty cool, and it went in you know directions I wasn't expecting. But yeah, great books all around. Um, speaking, going back to talking about Alphaba, do you know what the origin of that name is? I'm no. going to school you. I'm taking you to school. No, no idea. It's um, it, it was put together based on the original author of the Wizard of Oz books, L. Frank Baum, Alphaba. Nice, very nice. Yeah. No, I did not know that. A little callback, a little homage, if you will. It's a couple of years ago I read The Wizard of Oz again. I did too, and I thought it was fantastic. Like, yeah. I did that with um, The Wizard of Oz, and then what did I do that with? The Alice in Wonderland, the Through the Looking Glass and stuff like that. Yeah, I tried to read that when I first got my, my first Sony reader, because I think it came pre-installed or because it was one of the free ones, and I got totally sidetracked by other books I wanted to read, and I've still never read Alice in Wonderland. Oh man, they stand up. They're awesome. There's also a little, I haven't had a chance to watch this yet, but there's a little bit of an introduction to Out of Oz that I'm going to post on our website as well if it's if it ends up being any good. I just thought it was definitely noteworthy because it's a series that a lot of people have loved. And obviously the musical, did you go see the musical? I did not. Oh, the musical's fantastic. It's well worth it. And the music... Uh, is incredible and I'm not a big musical person but it it's a great great musical I here's my thought I've I've wanted to see it um but then my thought was I, I don't see how somebody got musical out of that I mean yeah I understand that the movie The Wizard of Oz was a musical but in reading <laughs> Wicked I still don't see how someone thought you know we should put some show tunes to this yeah yeah so that's why I haven't <laughs> like I said I'm when I like something, I, I'm somewhat a completist. Like I said, it's still on my list to, to, to read that series. And, of course, seeing Wicked would, would be on that list as well. But eh, I don't know. I've heard good things about it. I just can't seem to make the jump from what I took to be a very, very seriously written story to, like, singing and dancing. It's it's great. And it's, well, it's like, I'm not going to get all geeky on it, but it's it's worth it. I think that um, what they did, what they, it's it's funny because it's a, it's a, musical that is it adapted from a story that was adapted from a story so it's yeah it's definitely layers removed from the original concept but man that musical kicks ass yeah in talking about things that recently came out um by the time you're hearing this uh stephen king's eleven twenty two sixty three has probably been released um comes out on november 8th <sighs> i've spent the last four <laughs> months now Convincing Rob, we need to review a Stephen King book. I know you've heard his thoughts on it um, on numerous episodes. Uh, so finally had him locked on this one, and now I'm kind of pulling back, and we're not going to review it. And would you like to tell them why we're not reviewing it, Rob? I don't know the exact number, but doesn't the Kindle edition cost like seventeen? Sixteen ninety nine. Sixteen ninety nine is the exact number. <laughs> For anybody who uh, it doesn't have a Kindle, that's at least seven dollars more than the average price of a uh, of a Kindle book, so it's it's approaching double the ad- average price of a Kindle book. Yeah, I haven't read the last I don't know three or four Stephen King novels. I read his collection of short stories, and I was kind of lukewarm on it. And, and I was really looking forward to this one. And I've got to tell you, I'm just I'm actually offended by the pricing. And yes, as a uh, you know as a manufacturer as you know, a musician, an artist, whatever, as any type of creator or agency that creates content, certainly you can price your stuff as high as you want. 
to charge $17 for a digital download to me is absolutely absurd. You know, just to keep it in context, right now it's, you know, I'm looking at the Amazon. It's uh, two days before launch day. You can pre order it for $18.40. Chances are this book is going to land in your local Walmart for $18. <laughs> it's uh, seriously, and it's $16.99 for, uh, for the Kindle copy. So as um, as my personal message to the publisher, um, you know, I'm just not going to pay 17 bucks to read your book as much as I want to. I'm not going to do it. You know what you could do to get it cheaper as well? Wait about six months and go to Goodwill. And I'm oh, sure you go you to Goodwill or you know what? Or in six to eight months, it's going to be in the front door at the, at the um, Barnes & Noble <laughs> in like the $5 hardcover bin. Yeah. You know, but the whole point is, is that this is, you know, again, I'm, I'm not much of a, uh, of an activist, you know, when it comes to too many things, but this is kind of my little personal message to the uh, publishers is that what you're doing is just flat out wrong. I mean, yeah. <laughs> everybody's eligible to make a profit, but you know what? Once this is made, and, and and you know, if this was priced at nine ninety nine, we'd be all over it, and it would certainly be our next review. At, at seventeen bucks, it's ridiculous. I have not seen one ebook priced anywhere near this this range. The only other time I've seen Livius up in arms about anything was um, any time a smoking law was <laughs> any kind of smoking law was passed. Or if like if a, if a restaurant that he liked uh, stopped allowing people to smoke, uh, he'd stop going to that restaurant. It's very much uh, it, smoking is the only thing that he really ever gets upset about. So this yeah, is a big deal. Mean, let's, yeah, I mean, let's this is this seriously, this is bullshit, you know. And and you talk about things. We've had this conversation on the show before about ebook piracy and whatever. You know what? This is a reason why somebody would pirate a book. And you know what? We very well could have done the same thing. I'm sure that we could get a copy of this book in the next couple of days. But again, my message to the publisher is we're just not gonna we're we're just not gonna acknowledge. I mean, we've acknowledged that it's out, and then we're gonna tell people that we're not gonna read it because of the price. That's right. So, I'm gonna tell them not to read it. There you go. Don't read it. We'll say this. If you really want to hear about it, our friend Richard Thomas um, posted on Twitter that he's uh, partway through it. He's going to be reviewing it for Lit Reactor. So if you really want to get the scoop now, that being said, Richard Thomas loves Stephen King. So I can already see how this review is going to go. <laughs> I like Stephen King. Rob doesn't. So it might have been a very interesting episode, but now the world will never know. Yeah, it was It was going to be my biggest concession is, what, is reading a Stephen King book. Half so that I could just rail against Stephen King. But um, yeah. That chance is lost. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm not even blaming Stephen King. I, I'm sure that at this point, he doesn't even care what his books sell for. Um, even the hardcover price, the the retail price on it's 35 bucks, which I also believe is probably the highest priced hardcover I've I've seen. You know, a lot of them are like 26.95. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the 35 flat. That's that's a that's a pretty high ticket on a, on a hardcover. But again, at least you're getting some merchandise there and there's an actual cost to making a book and yeah. shipping it and, yeah. and, you know, all of that. So, yeah, at least with a physical book, there's like some supply chain to consider. There's like steps along the way that need to be, you know, taken care of to get someone this actual book with a digital download. It's like, Oh, you know, did you, did you put the file in the hosting website? Yeah. All right. We're good. Yeah, I mean that's not the whole. You know, there are some great authors out there that offer their fiction at you know a, a dollar and and two ninety nine. And I, I'm not saying that that's what this should be. You know what? This is going to be number one on the bestseller list, I'm sure, unless the whole world rails against it because of its price. You know, but ten bucks, I think, is pretty much where I'm going to draw the line on on ebooks. I'm with you. So. Occupy Stephen King's house. That's right. Occupy Amazon. 
<laughs> that being said, we have some more Amazon news. And I should just mention, we don't actually get paid by Amazon. And the reason we don't is just because they haven't offered to give us any money because we would totally take money from Amazon if they offered it. Mm-hmm. So, so now we're going to go into some decent news about Amazon after uh, talking about how nobody should buy that book. That's right. Um, when you're done not buying the Stephen King book, there is something you can do. And actually, this might be a way to get one over on Stephen King if it ends up on the list. <laughs> uh, Kindle... Amazon recently announced the uh, the Kindle Owners Lending Library. Um, essentially what it is is exactly what it sounds like. Kindle is making a bunch of titles that they have available basically for free to borrow from their lending library. The way it works is if you own a Kindle um, and have an Amazon Prime account, you can essentially go to the Kindle store from your Kindle, search through a title if it says Prime, Somewhere next to it, um, you have the option to borrow it for free. There's no limit to how long that you can have the book for, um, so you can read it at your leisure. The only couple of restrictions are that you can only have one borrowed book at a time, and you can only borrow a maximum of one book per calendar month, so a total of 12 books per year. If, let's say, you currently have a book borrowed, and you want to get a different one, you're going to be prompted to return the other book before you can get the new one. It's supposed to be a really easy process. Uh, So it's kind of a cool idea. And another thing about it, I guess if you have multiple Kindles, I guess maybe families, you know, might have multiple Kindles and they're only using one Amazon account. You could read that book on, on any Kindle that's tied to that Amazon account. So I guess that's, you know, a good feature for someone. And, um, that's about it. They say they have thousands of books available, including over 100 current and former New York Times bestsellers. And I know that in the graphic they have on the Amazon website, they show like the uh, the Hunger Games trilogy and some other you know big names like Water for Elephants and stuff like that. So uh, it's an interesting premise, and I think that for the average person, 12 books a year is a pretty hefty number. So an Amazon Prime account now has the ability to give you you know, I guess the you know the ability to read as many books as you could in a year without actually buying them. So, you know, it's interesting. A couple caveats there. I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but um, even though you can read it on multiple Kindles, you will not be able to read it on your iPad, iPhone, any of the Kindle. Well, only on Kindles. It won't be able to be read on just Kindle applications on your computer or your smartphone. Right. Um, the other one is um, the the. Uh, the big six, as they're referred to, the six biggest publishers are not participating in this. Um, so that is books by Random House, HarperCollins, Penguin, Macmillan, Simon & Schuster, and um, Hachette? Hachette? I don't know. Whatever it is. They're not participating in this. So um, what does that mean? Although you will get um, some of your favorite books. For example, the, the newest King book is, um, is uh, being published by Scribner. So they are not part of the big six. Uh, that doesn't mean that his book will be on there. But you know, if you have a favorite author that has a you know ten book contract with Random House, um, it's unlikely that they'll be joining this, as they have been the the biggest. Uh, th- that group has been the biggest ones fighting with Amazon over who gets to set the publisher price. So they're they're the price of eBooks. So it's unlikely that they're going to be offering their wares for for free through that program. Yeah. I and the figure I think that I read was 5,000 books, right at 5,000. So their thousands is not like 2,000. I mean, they're saying they've got, you know, 
around 5,000 nonfiction and fiction books as well. There's some decent titles on there, like uh, the Richard Castle Heatwave book, so fans of the TV show Castle um, can check that book out. The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, Secretariat. Um, yeah, so there's some big names on there. Like I said before, Waters for Elephants, uh, the Hunger Games trilogy. And uh, the other thing to uh, to remember, too, the $80 Amazon Prime, the annual fee, um, also includes um, streaming downloads on their own type of Netflix um, service and free two-day shipping on anything you order from them. So if you do uh, you do frequently order books or, or other merchandise directly from Amazon, not one of their, like, vendor partners, um, or, uh, you know, watch a lot of movies or, you know, older TV shows on your PC, there is some added value there too a lot of people have been paying well i don't know many but this prime program has been in place for a few years now offering only free shipping and then offering streaming so it's a there's definitely added value there even if you're looking to get more than 12 free ebooks a year mm-hmm. and i swear man amazon they had a strategy like i they they must have just been working on this strategy because everything's dropping you know all at once like the fire is coming out now you can borrow books if you have the prime account and the fire comes with a month 30 days free of the the prime account so it's just getting people hooked into that idea that they can stream all this stuff for free on their on their kindle fire and then borrow books and everything it's it's an interesting strategy well and if you're um an android phone owner and not aware of this months ago they set up their uh their uh, android app store which um each day gives you a paid app for free. They, uh, you know, I don't know, they contract with the vendors or whatever. And, and most of them are games, but I've gotten some great free apps just from, uh, just from, you know, having an Amazon account on there. And they set that up in preparation for, for the Kindle Fire. But yeah, as just a regular Android phone owner, you can go on there and download a different app for free every day. I've got some really great stuff. Uh, most recently, the uh, Office to Go. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a mobile version of like Word and Excel and PowerPoint, um, which is normally 15 bucks, was a free app of the day a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, there's some great value there, even if you're not planning on getting a Kindle Fire, you know. So there it is, Kindle Owner Lending Library. Um, interesting thought, and I can imagine that for the average person who's cool with dropping 80 bucks uh, a year on the Amazon Prime, or maybe if you already have it, you get 12 books to read. And you can take as long as you want to read them, you know. So I think they still have a free student program too that you can sign up for, and there is a one-month free trial. So if you just want to kind of browse and see what books are available, or take advantage of one free ebook, you can sign up, um, and then just cancel within the month. The student one, because I have it, um, mm-hmm. is limited. It's it's definitely limited. It doesn't. You can't benefit from the streaming, the free streaming stuff. Oh, I'm With glad your, you said that. I wasn't aware of that there were any limitations. Yeah, I know that because I I worked for a college and so I had a .edu account and that's why I got the Kindle, the Amazon Prime account for free at some point. But um, there was the disclaimer that certain features aren't aren't you know aren't available. One of them was the free streaming. So it's good to know. Very cool. Uh, enough about Amazon. Yeah, definitely enough about him. As I said, they're still not paying us. So, <laughs> well, they're the. Here's the thing: they're like kind of the big hitters in the industry right now. So it'd be stupid not to talk about. It. And they're innovators. Like I mean, we talked about Blasted Heath, and and mm-hmm. there's some innovation that I'm really excited about. And but I mean, on if you're just digging through newspapers or articles or something, Amazon is innovating more now than anybody else. I think in the publishing, in the world of publishing. Oh, and you know what? And that being said, let's not forget. Um, this is something else I we talked about a little earlier. Um, 
So the Amazon Fire is going to come out. It's one hundred ninety nine dollars. Um, Best Buy apparently over the weekend um, marked down their Nook color to two hundred dollars. This is something I, I saw online. Um, was unable to verify myself, but if you are a Barnes and Noble fan um, and want to go that route, you can get the Nook color, which is very similar to um, you know it's an Android based tablet. Uh, you know that's that's done by Barnes and Noble. So I don't know that it's quite as open as the Kindle Fire promises to be as far as being able to download like a ton of different applications and stuff. But that's a nice significant price drop for something that at least spec wise is very similar to the Fire. Yeah, I've I've seen and played with a Nook color or two in my day, and they're impressive machines. I, I if someone gave it to me, I'd be happy. Wink, 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 listeners. Yeah. Or Amazon, would you like us to review your fire? <laughs> Just send a couple uh, right on over. That's a good idea. We should uh, we should pitch that to Amazon. Hey, we can review your your Kindle Fire to send us some. I like that. We will exclusively read books for our podcast <laughs> on the Kindle Fire if you send us two of them. <laughs> really quickly, I want to talk about this because when we were talking about the DB Cox and uh, Chris Steele short story collections. We also talked about other short stories that we had read and how it's kind of tough to find good collections of short stories and stuff. So uh, Caleb J. Ross and D.B. Cox himself actually gave us some suggestions. And I thought they were good enough that um, I wanted to make sure people saw them if they don't happen to read the comments for our posts on our website. Caleb Ross suggests T.C. Boyle, Vladimir Nabokov, Octavio Paz, and specifically the story The Blue Bouquet, David... Benioff has a collection called When the Nines Roll Over. Um, also, Rob Roberge with a book called Working Backward from the Worst Moment of My Life. Adam Johnson, a collection called Emporium. And Brian Evanson's collection, The Wavering Knife. So I'll make sure I put a little list of those on the website. Uh, D.B. Cox gave us a list as well. He likes Raymond Carver, which I read a little bit of Raymond Carver, and I, I liked it. Uh, there's also Nelson Algren, Sherman Alexi, and Tim O'Brien's collection, The Things They Carried. Thanks to Caleb and DB for submitting those. I wanted to make sure that I got those out for people to check out as well. Yeah, I'm definitely going to sample um, a few of those when I have some some extra time. I think what I might do with uh, with those collections is I might make those my kind of lunchtime reading where I can knock out a story or two while I'm uh, eating a sandwich at lunch at work and... Uh, Kind of maybe work my way through those a little bit. I've, I've really kind of taken to that. <clears throat> what I think I like about short stories is I like being able to read one and kind of simmer on it. And in some cases, you know, I have to read them back to back for the for the show. Mm-hmm. So I've started kind of thinking about that, just reading one short story a day kind of thing. Yeah. So letting it kind of simmer with me for a little bit before I, you know, completely switch gears and move into something else. So. Well, now your bookshelf is loaded. My Kindle will be loaded. One more noteworthy thing to mention, um, yeah, maybe from a reading standpoint down the way, it's a National Novel Writing Month. It's uh, November, the month of the year where uh, last year like 30,000 people um, completed National Novel Writing Month, which is uh, knocking out a short novel all in the month of November. And, you know, Realistically, it's more of a knocking out a first draft. Um, and the reason it's uh, interesting to mention, because, you know, there's a good chance that sometime maybe next year we'll be reading something that someone started writing this month. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's something that I, I first heard about back in 05, and I thought it was really great. And I have made about three attempts now to go through the entire National Novel Writing Month, and I have failed exactly three times to do so. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the idea is within the 30 days of November, you have to write 
a novel that's at least 75,000 words, I believe, is the, uh, is the goal to reach, which comes out to about 1,300 words or so a day, which seems very attainable until you try to write 1,300 words a day. <laughs> I am going to totally question your math on that without even looking at a calculator. 1,300 times 30 is 39,000, I think. Oh, maybe I'm wrong with the... Uh... <laughs> I, I think I think you're closer to write with the thirteen hundred a day than the seventy five thousand. But maybe I'm just uh, maybe it was the the number that was the goal that I, I that I got there. Maybe anyway. that's why you failed three times. <laughs> well, I know it was something like uh, thirteen hundred words a day. All right, I'm I'm doing the math on this backwards now. So maybe it's fifty thousand that I was talking about. Anyway, uh, Livius is right. I was wrong about that, but uh, it, it's it's tougher than it. Than it appears to get through, but um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't um, didn't we read something recently that came from National Novel Writing Month? I feel like it. You did. know, I, I thought we did too. Oh, I just couldn't come up with. I'll tell you what it is. Wasn't the original um, Night Circus writing? Didn't that come from National Novel Writing Month? And then she rewrote it and changed a bunch of stuff. I feel like that's. That that could be right. At any rate, yeah, good stuff can come from National Novel Writing Month, so uh, it's very possible that if not next year, then you know, somewhere down the line, like Livia said, we will be reading something on the show that that started out right here. It's a really cool concept, and you know, the the things I've read about it, because I always thought it was really interesting, um, it is more like I said, it's to write a first draft, not a completed novel. Um, unless you're Stephen Graham Jones or Eddie Rathke. Uh, it, it's, you know, that and just to get in the habit of writing, you know, frequently every day. That's, it's, it's more of a habit builder than it is the true goal of, you know, of having a polished and finished novel that, you know, you finish at the end of November and is on shelves in bookstores January 1st. So. <laughs> Very true. And I, I, I do want to say that while I am not participating in National Novel Writing Month, I'm kind of doing an on National Novel Writing Month, where I've just been trying to write on a regular basis, and I'm in the last four or five days, I've piled up about a thousand words. So um, it's a lot Ooh. better than what I'm doing lately. Local really short story month. Let's see, <laughs> which yeah, would be right. low red schistimo <laughs> instead of anorimo. Somebody put that on a T-shirt for me. All right. Um, for the first time in weeks, we're actually going to tell you what we're reviewing next week with, <laughs> with some certainty. It's uh, We're going to do Jonathan Mayberry's um, Dead of Night, which is a zombie novel. It's a standalone, at least at this point. I personally know uh, Mayberry from um, from the Joe Ledger series, which I know I've mentioned here on the show a couple of times and, and really, really like. I'm very much looking forward to the next one, which should come out in early 2012. But as a tide-over, um, yeah, totally going to do Dead of Night. And then we're never going to talk about zombies again. Yeah, it'll be a cold day in hell when we talk about zombies after this. Uh, it's just been zombie overload. I will say, though, that I am currently 13% of the way into Dead of Night. I got a little jump start. And so far, I really like it. Um, this is my first book that I'm reading by Jonathan Mayberry. But um, it's good. It's really good so far. So I'm, I'm enthusiastic about where it's going. Very cool. All right. Um, hopefully uh, you're listening to us either on, well, hopefully you're listening on Stitcher just because that's the way I like it. Um, or, uh, <laughs> or 
or on the website. But if you're not listening to either one of those and you're an iUser, um, you can definitely get us on iTunes. If you own a Zune, the Zune Network is <laughs> still hosting our podcast um, with, I don't know, probably zero hits through there. <laughs> so those are the main places you can get us at. Bill Gates listens to us on his Zune. I'm sure of it. Yep. Um, here's how you can reach us. You can email us, bookedpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are at bookedpodcast. And our favorite way to talk to people recently has been a lot of fun is on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash bookedpodcast. Make sure you click like, so that way um, whatever we post will go right on your wall and you can see what's going on. Sometimes it'll be articles like the Kin- the, the Kindle lending library I know Livius put up the other day. Um, otherwise, just uh, yeah, letting you know when an episode's out so you can go check it out. There it is. There it is. Just wanted to sneak that one in. Ferg. On there. Sean Ferguson. Yep. Alright, and then until next time, uh, this is Livia Studden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Kiss off into the air Behind my back